The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another special episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the more intriguing uh, discoveries and uh, theories that have captured the imagination of archaeologists and the lay community over the past few years is an ongoing research project uh, called the Tiger Project that has been led by uh, Richard Gillespie. And the project is uh, one of a number of ventures to uh, look at uh, the... um, Disappearance of Amelia Earhart's plane in 1937. It's a very, very extensive project that has been around for quite a while. And uh, there have been some very new discoveries and some very very new theories and hypotheses about uh, the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. The founder of the uh, group, the Tiger Group, is uh, Richard Gillespie who has been around airplanes and learned to fly when he was still in high school. And he, uh, his background is that he has a BA in history and enlisted in the U.S. Army and served as an officer with the 1st Cavalry Division. He began a 12-year career as an aviation accident investigator and risk manager in the aviation insurance industry in 1973. Uh, he founded the Tiger Group in 1985. It's a nonprofit foundation uh, and has brought together a number of scholars, scientists, and enthusiasts whose volunteer expertise and financial contributions support the organization's mission to promote responsible aviation archaeology and historic preservation. It's my pleasure to bring in uh, Rick Gillespie to discover the latest uh, information on his research on the Amelia Earhart disappearance. And uh, thank you so much for appearing on the program. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, Rick, uh, for the benefit of those in our audience who don't know much about the uh, 
the uh, research that has been done over the years. Why don't you provide a little bit of a synopsis on how you began on this mission and how your career started that moved you in this direction? Sure, happy to. Uh, of course, the the mystery of what happened to Amelia Earhart, and, and it's a mystery that started 77 years ago in 1937, uh, has captured the imagination of the American public and the international public. And there have been many theories about what happened to her. And it, it has become one of those iconic mysteries that's debated endlessly. There, are, there have been innumerable books published, each one of them purporting to solve the mystery with conclusive evidence, and of course they don't. Uh, there have been outrageous claims made uh, and disproven and made again. You know, it's conspiracy, conspiracy theories abound, as they always do in cases like this. Amelia Earhart was, at the time she disappeared in 1937, the, the most admired woman in America, second only to the first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, at that time. And she was at the height of her career, trying to circumnavigate the globe at the equator, which had never been done, although many pilots had, had flown around the world. But this was a, a special effort to circle the, wor- the world, um, as, as Amelia put it, uh, by the longest route possible, at as close as she could come to doing it right at the equator. And it was, it was done at a time when the public knew that world air travel was right on the horizon. Pan American Airways had been flying scheduled passenger service across the North Atlantic for nearly a year at the time she started her her circumnavigation. A group of journalists had just flown around the world by commercial airlines um, just to show that that it was possible that you could do it. So... Amelia and her husband, George Putnam, who was probably the finest American promoter since P.T. Barnum, came up with a, an idea that Amelia, who was already extraordinarily famous as a record-setting aviator, would fly around the world, and at each place she landed and stayed overnight, she would file a story with the New York Herald Tribune syndicate of newspapers. And believe it or not, in 1937, in most places around the world, she could do that by telephone. She could phone in a story uh, telling about the, as a travelogue, telling about her flying adventures and the exotic places and people she met on the way. Well, this was a, a great deal for Earhart, who was a professional aviation celebrity, uh, who today wouldn't jump at the chance to get a uh, an article in news, a syndicate of newspapers across the country every day for a month, and you get to write the stories? Uh, great opportunity for her. For the New York Herald Tribune syndicate, it, it was a great deal for them, too, because people could follow Amelia's progress, be great for the paper, and, and a tremendous public interest. So she set off. Uh, in March of 1937, taking off from Oakland, California, 
flying to Hawaii, setting a record for the shortest time, a little over 17 hours. But then on her takeoff for the next leg of her trip to a a tiny island in mid-Pacific called Howland Island, she lost control of the airplane on takeoff in Hawaii and wrecked the airplane. Fortunately, there was no fire. Nobody was hurt. But it really set her back. The airplane had to be shipped back to California to Lockheed, the manufacturer, for extensive repairs. So when she set off again for a second attempt, she reversed her path around the world. Instead of going east to west to Hawaii, she took off from Oakland and flew across the U.S. to Miami, where she stayed for eight days fixing some problems that had shown up uh, after the the cross-country flight. And then from Miami, she continued on around the world, down through South America, across the South Atlantic, across the African um, continent, uh, across the Indian subcontinent, down to Southeast Asia, to Australia, and ultimately New Guinea. At that time, the territory of New Guinea, today Papua New Guinea, and a, a small seacoast town called Ley, New Guinea, where there was an airfield and facilities to support her for her longest and most dangerous leg of her trip, a 2,500-mile, most almost entirely over-ocean flight. It was going to take her 19 to 20 hours, uh, and her... Her target was, again, Howland Island, this, this tiny fly speck of an island in, in mid-Pacific, where the U.S. Coast Guard had a, a cutter, the Itasca, stationed to send her radio, call, um, radio weather forecasts and put out radio signals upon which she could home in with her radio direction finder. Her plan for finding Howland Island was for her navigator, and she had a navigator with her, a man named Fred Noonan, who had previously worked for Pan American. He was probably one of the finest aerial navigators of the day. Noonan would keep her more or less on course on this long journey across the Pacific from New Guinea to Holland Island. Keep her on course with celestial navigation, looking at the stars and taking bearings, also dead reckoning and... Um, just a, a, a general navigation to keep her on course until she was close enough to pick up the radio signals from the Coast Guard. And then the plan was for her to use her direction finder to fine-tune the approach with radio bearings to Howland Island. It was a good plan. It was essentially the same way Pan American navigated across the Pacific. Uh, and, uh, and they had been doing it for some time. Noonan pioneered the technique. But the plan went awry. Uh, the, the basic problem she had was that she didn't understand the frequency limitations of her direction-finding radio. So when she got close enough for the Coast Guard Cutter Itasca to hear her and was trying to take bearings on the Itasca, she asked them to send signals on a frequency that was far too high for her radio direction finder to home in on. She heard the signal okay, but she didn't, she she was not able to get a bearing to know which way to go. 
The other problem she had is she had an accident on takeoff from New Guinea that she didn't know about. She lost the antenna on the underside of the aircraft. It was a long wire that stretched from the nose back almost to the tail, supported on mass. And at some point during the takeoff run, that um, antenna was knocked off. We, we, we know that for sure because we have film of the takeoff. When she taxis out to take off, the antenna's there. When she comes back by the camera on her takeoff run, the antenna's gone. Now you see it, now you don't. So the consequences of that was she was not able to hear the voice communications from the Coast Guard. She, was, she transmitted, they heard her just fine, but she couldn't hear their replies. So, and she didn't understand her radio system well enough to work around that problem and understand that she didn't have a, a transmitter problem, she had an antenna problem. But in any event, she did not arrive at Howland Island, and at uh, just about five minutes before 9 o'clock in the morning local time, the Itasca heard her last radio transmi- transmission in which she said that she was on a particular navigational line. We are on the line 157337, running on the line north and south. And then she said she was going to change frequencies and, and try getting the message through on another frequency. And they never heard anything more from her. Okay, so she disappeared. She vanished. And on that note, we're going to have to take a brief break. Uh, we will be back with Rick Gillespie, uh, who is giving us an updated on the most most recent discoveries and the latest theories and hypotheses on the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. Stay tuned. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you are a dreamer aspiring to realize your dreams, join host Michael Friedlander for Dreamers, Winners, and Making a Difference. For Michael, to be a winner doesn't mean you must have finished first or must have great wealth, fame, and lots of toys. Instead, it means you must have realized your dreams without cheating or acting unethically. It means you must have made a difference for the better in the lives of those you've touched. Tune in to Dreamers, Winners, and Making a Difference, live every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Can you dig it, we are back with uh, Rick Gillespie, who has dedicated a lot of his professional efforts since 1988 to uh, reconstruct the uh, history of Amelia Earhart's disappearance when she was crossing the Pacific in her around-the-world venture uh, to uh, in aviation in 1937. Uh, a lot has happened. It's a it's a project that has been widely publicized um, in archaeological and prof- and uh, non professional circles. And there are some major updates. And Rick has been telling us that one what what has been very very clear is that Amelia Earhart lost com- contact with commu- and lost communication with uh, her navigation partner. And that it was uh, it was that loss of communication that has basically explained uh, in part her disappearance. Rick, why don't you continue and tell us a little bit about uh, where where we left off and 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 how she lost her um, contact and how you uh, started to develop your uh, theories about what happened here. So uh, Amelia has reached the vicinity of her intended destination, tiny Howland Island. The Coast Guard aboard the Cutter Itasca is hearing her, and they're hearing her very loudly. They're under the impression that, that she's, she, she, she should be within sight. They're, they're hearing her at maximum strength. And yet, she never arrived. Just stopped transmitting, never arrived. And the assumption that the captain made, uh, of the cutter made, was that she had run out of fuel and landed in the ocean, ditched in the sea. That's why there were no more radio communications. And he immediately started searching for her on the assumption that the airplane was out there floating around someplace and uh, he may may be able to find it. Well, um, the next thing that happened was as soon as the sun went down that day, now this is around noontime that he starts to search for her. And uh, around, as soon as the sun goes down, the, the cutter and other stations around the Pacific start to hear radio calls on Earhart's frequency that they think are probably distress calls. In some cases, uh, the, there's only a carrier wave, just a background noise on her frequency. In other cases, her voice is heard, although not intelligible, but people who had talked to her while she was in flight earlier in the flight uh, recognized her voice. They were sure these messages were coming from her. So that really reinforced the idea, oh, she's out here someplace, floating around, we've got to find her. And... This, of course, made national news. It, it, by that time, it was just headline news all across the U.S. And the uh, airplane's manufacturer, Lockheed, chimed in and said, wait a minute, if you're hearing radio calls from this airplane, 
it's not floating around in the water because the radio components would be wet, and they don't like to be wet. <laughs> that right. airplane can't transmit if it's in the water. If so she had to be radio calls from this airplane. It's she on had to land be in a stationary someplace. place, right? Right. Yeah, it, it's on. It's it's not only on land. She's on her wheels because she has to be able to run an engine to recharge the battery that the radio depends upon. Right. So she has made a safe landing someplace, and there's just not a lot of land out there. And they they hear for the next several nights they're hearing these radio distress calls, and they take bearings. The the Pan American Airways stations in in Hawaii, Midway, Wake Island are hearing these signals. They take bearings, and the bearings are crossing in an island group called the Phoenix Group. It's it's down four degrees south of the equator, about 350 miles south of Holland Island. And there are eight islands in that archipelago down there. They're coral atolls. And the Navy looked at this data and said, wait a minute, we're hearing signals from Earhart that have to be coming from an airplane on land that has landed safely. Those are the, the, the bearings are down there in the Phoenix group. We need to send a ship down there to, to search those islands with aircraft. And that's what uh-huh. they did. They, they dispatched a battleship from Hawaii, uh, the USS Colorado. It took a week for the Colorado to get down to the Phoenix group. And by then, the mysterious radio signals had stopped. Uh, and when the aircraft from the Colorado, there were three catapult-launched float planes, when the airplanes from the Colorado circled the primary suspect island, the island called Gardner Island, they did not see an airplane. But they did see signs that someone was there, what they described as clear signs of recent habitation. They were under the impression that all these islands had work parties of Pacific Islanders harvesting coconuts and so forth. And so they weren't terribly surprised to see signs of habitation on this island. What they didn't know at the time was that the island had no history of habitation. There would have been a work party in 1892. That was the last time anybody was there. There should have been no sign of recent activity there. They didn't know that. They didn't see an airplane. They crossed the place off as having been searched. And the rest of the U.S. Navy search, and it was a massive effort involving several ships, took place in open ocean looking for a floating airplane and found nothing. The reasoning was the airplane had, if, if the radio signals were genuine, the airplane had to be on land. We've looked on land. We don't see an airplane. Therefore, the signals must have been bogus. And, of course, the flaw in that reasoning is something can happen to an airplane, especially if, if the signals have stopped. If the airplane has landed uh, on, the, on a reef, as it appears it actually did happen, uh, the, the airplane can be washed over the edge of the reef into the ocean and out of sight. And that's why your signals have stopped. But they didn't follow that reasoning. Uh, they didn't find anything. And at the end of the day... When the search was called off after more than two weeks, they, um, they said, well, she must have just crashed at sea, sunk without a trace, and we didn't do anything wrong. We never stood a chance to find her, but we gave it our best shot. And that's where it stood. Uh, but a, a mystery like so, that... So let me just backtrack 
let me just backtrack for so that's yeah. where it stood basically until you resumed this investigation or started the investigation in the late 80s oh no what the the, the next thing that happened was of, of significance to all this was uh, was pearl harbor december 7th surprise attack by the right. japanese and suddenly a, group, a number of people are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, those nefarious Japanese were up to something out there. Maybe, maybe that had something to do with Amelia Earhart. They, they were up to no good out there. And so this theory arose that Amelia Earhart had been on a spy mission for the Roosevelt administration and had, had been trying to photograph Japanese military installations in the Marshall Islands and had been either forced down or shot down or crash-landed or something, um, taken prisoner, and, uh, and it just got crazier and crazier. Uh, ended up on Saipan, imprisoned. Various accounts had her being uh, beheaded, died of dysentery, taken to Japan uh, to be Tokyo Rose. Uh, There's even a, a whole line of of theories about how she was actually repatriated to the United States after the end of the war and assumed a sort of like a proto-witness protection program. Uh, um, a new identity is a New Jersey housewife named Irene Bolam. I mean, it just got that mm. crazy. And uh, the, the Japanese capture theory was very popular for, for quite a while. And then there was a backlash to that theory where people said, no, no, that's just crazy. There's, there's no real evidence that that happened. And she must have just crashed at sea. And so when we entered the fray, if you will, in 1988, it was between she was captured by the Japanese or she just crashed at sea. And Got it. We, we looked at the evidence and took a different tack. We looked at the evidence and said, well, what... What is she known to have said, have said about what she's doing? Well, that last radio transmission the Coast Guard heard, she said she was following a particular navigational line. She didn't say, I'm going down, I'm out of fuel, mayday, mayday. She said, I'm, I'm following this line running north and south. And experienced aerial navigators, experienced in the same techniques her, navigate, her navigator knew, would look at that and say, well, she, she's, what she said she was doing is exactly what she should be doing. She's following a line of position. And that line of position, if she follows it to the south, as she said she's doing, north and south, should lead her to another island, an island where she could land. But it's uninhabited. And nobody ever really searched for her there. And I thought, wait a minute. You know, I, I, I heard this from our our navigator members, and I said, you're telling me nobody ever looked for Amelia Earhart in the most likely place. And they said, well, that's the way it looks to us. So we raised some money, we did some research, and discovered that this was the, the earliest Earhart theory. This is what the Navy thought happened. Same island, Gardner Island. So, okay, um, she may have reached Gardner Island. I guess we need to go look. So we put together our first expedition out there in 1989. We didn't find a big silver airplane lurking in the bushes like Indiana Jones would have, but we did find in the abandoned, now abandoned um, Islander village on the island, nobody's lived there for almost 50 years now, 
airplane parts. These people somehow had access to airplane parts. Where did they get them? They were metals poor culture. They're using them for, to make fishing lures and combs and other local uses. Where are they getting these airplane parts? And so we, we launched a, a, a multifaceted investigation. And then that's another point to make about these historical investigations. You, you want to approach it from a number of different angles because uh, you, you, the, the strength of a particular theory lies in having a number of unrelated hypotheses that test out favorably and all suggest the same conclusion. And that's what we have going on at Gardner Island. So... Uh, but the, the most interesting we have thing to take another you ready for another break we have to take another break but we'll, okay good yeah got to do another break we will be back and we will discuss theories hypotheses and eventually how you got where you are today we'll be right back with this very fascinating interview with rick gillespie stay tuned The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host Jordan Kimmel is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go, on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are back, and we are discussing the uh, Amelia Earhart disappearance and the mystery of where she went down, how she went down, and how a very special team led 
by Rick Gillespie, the founder of the Tiger Project and an expert in aviation accident reconstruction and forensics, has uh, basically... Uh, Developed a number of high uh, a number of hypotheses and probably is I'm guessing relatively close to trying to figuring out what exactly happened here based on a, a, a large interdisciplinary uh, research effort that he's put together since 1988. Now my understanding at this point is it it all goes back to what the uh, the Coast Guard and or the Navy uh, overlooked when they were first looking and they basically had her in their sights in the beginning and they just said it was impossible when they identified basically the uh, evidence for occupation on Gardner Island. Is that correct? Yeah. They, they pretty much had it figured out and then made some bad choices and uh, and basically they blew it. But the, um, the uh, something we discovered well into our investigation was that rumors that had been around uh, about bones of a castaway having been found on Gardner Island that were thought to be Amelia Earhart uh, back around 1940. Uh, very few people believed that. It was just this crazy story about how the, some castaways' bones that might be your heart were found. And in 1997, one of our researchers, who was researching a different subject entirely in a remote Pacific archive in, in Tarawa, stumbled upon a British file full of telegrams that actually confirmed that that, that did happen, that a British colonial service officer in 1940 found a partial skeleton on Gardner Island that he thought might be Amelia Earhart. The, the thing that made him think it might be Earhart was that with the skeleton were the remains of a woman's shoe, the remains of a man's shoe, and a box that had once contained a sextant, navigational instrument. Hmm. And he knew that there was nobody else missing in the area in recent years, and he he sent a telegram back to the British headquarters in Fiji, a thousand miles away, describing what he'd found. And he said, you know, this this might be Amelia Earhart. And the British authorities, now it's September of 1940. It's a very dicey time for Great Britain. The Battle of Britain is on. The U.S. isn't in the war yet. They're going to be very careful about what they say to the Americans about this because they don't want to mm -hmm. cry wolf about the famous aviator. Mm -hmm. So they order the colonial service officer to send everything he found to, to the headquarters there in Fiji and keep his mouth shut. And he did. Mm -hmm. the, the, the bones arrived in Fiji in, in the spring of 1941. A doctor looked at the bones, took measurements, applied the formulas available to him, and concluded that the bones were the bones of a short, stocky European male, and therefore not Amelia Earhart. And they weren't even aware that, that she had a male with her, although Noonan was not short and stocky. He was kind of long and lanky. But anyway, uh, so these are um, not the bones of Amelia Earhart, as far as they knew. The file was closed. Very few people even knew about the incident. The bones were lost. We've looked and looked in Fiji. We, we can't find the bones. But we did find the measurements 
the doctor's notes, the measurements he took. And we mm-hmm. gave those measurements to two modern forensic anthropologists who plugged, it, plugged the data into the um, databases that are available now for identifying ethnicity and gender. What comes out of the computer is white female of northern European descent who stood five foot seven, five foot eight. Well, that's a that's a pretty good description of Amelia Earhart. So once we knew this had happened, that the bones of a castaway that very possibly were Amelia Earhart had been found on the island, we reasoned that if we could identify the place on the island where this event happened, this castaway's campsite where there'd been a campfire and dead birds and dead turtles and these other artifacts, if, if we could find the right place and examine it archaeologically, we might be able to find things that were missed in 1940 that would confirm or deny who this castaway was. And to make a very long story short, we did find the spot, and we conducted excavations in 2001, 2007, 2010. Uh, those, those excavations were led by our senior archaeologist, Dr. Tom King, whom you've spoken to before, Dr. Schilderman. Right. So, uh, and what we're finding at this site are artifacts that speak of an American woman of the 1930s. A woman, the remains of a woman's compact, two pieces of a broken mirror, uh, pieces of little red wafer-like material that tests out to be early 20th, early 20th century makeup. Uh, and the, the mirror matches the mirror in uh, 1930s vintage, I think it's Zell Fifth Avenue compact. Uh, a number of artifacts, bottle, broken bottles that can be identified not only by the embossing on the bottle. That, that, for example, one little bottle was made by Owens, Illinois, in their Bridgeton, New Jersey plant across the river from Philadelphia in 1933. And remnants of the uh, contents of the bottle, chemically tested, match a product called uh, Campana Italian Balm. It was made... In Batavia, Illinois, it was a very popular women's hand lotion in the U.S. Another little bottle, uh, technical term is an ointment pot, like a fancy little feminine-looking bottle, once mm-hmm. contained uh, an ointment that was extremely high in mercury, which is consistent with Dr. Berry's freckle cream, right. uh, an ointment that was sold in that style bottle that women use to make their freckles fade. And we know that her heart had freckles and she didn't like her freckles. We don't know that she used Dr. Bray's freckle cream, but there you find this thing on a remote Pacific island. Um, and it goes on and on, a number of artifacts. But nothing that you can link directly to Earhart. But, you know, after all, if, you're, if you've been a castaway, right. you're probably a ca- castaway there for a matter of months. Uh, what do you have on you that has your name on it? You know, that's pretty tough. But <clears throat> the the real breakthrough we have right now is that on our second expedition to the island, way back in 1991, we found in the abandoned Islander village a piece of aluminum, very clearly a section of airplane aluminum skin, the external covering of a metal airplane, about the size of a large dinner tray, about two feet by uh, 19 inches by two feet. And 
many rivet holes and a particular pattern, of a, a very complex artifact with a lot of information in it. And we had it tested by the National Transportation Safety Board Laboratories, of the kind of aluminum it was. There was one surviving rivet. We know exactly what kind of rivet that is. So these materials were consistent with the kind of airplane Amelia Earhart was flying when she disappeared. Uh, but those materials were also used by aircraft in World War II extensively. So where did this thing come from? Is this a part of Earhart's airplane, or is it part of some World War II wreck? And we worked on that for 23 years, trying to fit it to someplace on a Lockheed Electra airplane like she was flying, with no luck, uh, trying to match it to repairs that were made to her airplane. We, we thought we had it matched for quite a while, but then we got more information, and no, no luck, doesn't fit. And we thought, well, it's got to be from some other airplane. And we checked all the aircraft types that served in that region in World War II with the cooperation of major museums such as the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force. And nothing fit. Nothing came even close. And then one of our researchers had the idea, he recalled, that when Earhart started her second attempt to fly around the world, she made that stop in Miami we mentioned earlier. And she was there fixing some things. And one of the things she fixed, she had a special window installed on the right-hand side of the airplane that when she got to Miami for some reason, and we don't know why, she decided... That window had to go, had to go away, and they patched the hole where the window had been with just a plain sheet of aluminum. So one of the things they did during her eight-day stay in Miami was to replace this window with a plain aluminum patch. And we wondered, what was there any resemblance to our artifact, that patch? And we started looking for photographs and the photographs that, that show the patch clearly, and that's really difficult. So we've had to do a lot of work with our forensic imaging specialist. But the bottom line is, yes, the artifact is the right dimensions, proportions, appears to be the right rivet pattern, uh, failure patterns match it. It, it appears that what we have is the patch that was put on that airplane in Miami. Now, we're, we're about 99% sure that that's what we have. But in historical investigation and in science, there's always that 1%. We could be wrong about this. And so we, we continue to investigate this piece of metal and find out everything we can about it. Because what you have to do when you're testing a hypothesis, and the hypothesis we're testing, of course, is that this piece of metal we found on Gardner Island, now Nikumororo, uh, is the patch from Earhart's airplane. That's the hypothesis. And you, you test it by trying to disprove it. You look for something that will disqualify it, some way to say this can't possibly be what we hope it is. <laughs> and that's really tough to to try to be totally objective in assessing evidence and try to prove that you're wrong. You know, that's, that's so, it seems so counterintuitive to most people, but that's the way you have to go about it. Right. But uh, so far, 
we have not been able to find anything that disqualifies it. And the closer we look at this thing, the better it fits. The, the more things add up. And so what, of course, we really want is the rest of the airplane. We don't want some little piece of it. If, if that airplane's out there, we want it. And what we now think happened, based on all 26 years of research, is that she landed the airplane on the island's reef that is flat and smooth and dries at low tide, sent radio distress calls for nearly a week before the airplane was washed over the edge by rising tides and surf, that it uh, remained in fairly shallow water, probably 30, 40 feet of water, hidden for a number of years until a storm washed it back up onto the reef, probably in 1941, at which, by which time the island had been populated with Pacific Islanders who saw this wreck on the reef and salvaged some parts off it. They, they, they took the parts that we now find in the, the abandoned village. And then the sea reclaimed the aircraft, and it's now at the base of an underwater cliff at a depth of about 600 feet, and it may, and we, we think it is about a 50-50 chance that it is a sonar anomaly, anomaly we acquired during our 2012 expedition out there where we did a sonar survey of that whole reef slope. We have an underwater sonar anomaly that we think may be the Earhart aircraft. It's in the right place. We know it's the right size, the right shape, but we won't know whether... It's what we hope it is until we can get back out there with cameras on a remote-operated vehicle, go down and take a look at this thing. And that's what we're trying to do right now. We're, we're trying to put together the funding. We have our team assembled. We have the ship chartered. We just need to, to raise the rest of the money. But, of course, that's, that's always the way it is in archaeology, isn't it? We always have to raise the rest of the money to finish the and- job. And on that note, we will be back with Rick Gillespie to conclude our uh, fascinating broadcast on the latest discoveries of the probable, can we say probable at this point? Yeah, I, I, I think we're up to probable now. On the probable location and reconstruction of Amelia Earhart's last days and her final resting place, we will be back after these words. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you are a dreamer aspiring to realize your dreams, join host Michael Friedlander for Dreamers, Winners, and Making a Difference. For Michael, to be a winner doesn't mean you must have finished first or must have great wealth, fame, and lots of toys. Instead, it means you must have realized your dreams without cheating or acting unethically. It means you must have made a difference for the better in the lives of those you've touched. Tune in to Dreamers, Winners, and Making a Difference live every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. 
VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back with Rick Gillespie, who uh, has recounted the latest theories and the latest hypotheses that, as far as I can see, are, are very, very compelling on the reconstruction of Amelia Earhart's last days, her final resting place, and uh, one of the most interesting elements and one of the latest discoveries that that certainly is new to us on the program is uh, finally uh, developing a compelling case on what that piece of aluminum was that did not seem to fit anything that had been known before about the parts of the suspected plane that had been found and one of his research basic researchers basically traced that to a replacement patch that was placed on the airplane in Miami in her resting place and Rick it seems to me that you have so many compelling lines of evidence that converge on this um, that it's almost irrefutable at this point. You're going on and you want to find the nail that, that you want to find the nail that will be the final nail on the coffin. And my question to you, and we had discussed this with Rick over the break, what is a competing theory? What is it? What could possibly not fit? And who's making any kind of a valid claim that this is not the case? Well, okay. We, we, we still have the advocates of the Japanese capture theory. And they are strident, and um, they are... The, the only thing they lack is evidence, you know? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Which all, is the only thing of, you have, right? The only the, thing you have is evidence. Yeah. All, all of the purported evidence for her being captured by the Japanese is anecdotal, recollections. And you could fill a small auditorium with servicemen who were in the Pacific in World War II uh, who have a story uh, told to them by somebody on an island or something they find. There's, there's even a, a, a formula for this. Here's, here's how it goes. An enlisted man find something that is related to Amelia Earhart. Maybe it's her briefcase, her, her logbook, her, um, uh, a picture of her on a Japanese soldier, something like that. And he brings this thing, well, let's call it the MacGuffin, uh, as Alf, uh, Hitchcock would have called it. Right. He brings yeah, right. this MacGuffin to an officer, and the officer looks at it, and says, I've got to make this known to higher authority. You keep your mouth shut about this. Don't tell anybody about this. And that's the last the enlisted man hears, and he's been sworn to secrecy, but now years later he has to feel he has to come forward with a story. And there are literally 
dozens of stories like that, all different things that, that were found. But there are no Japanese records. There are no photographs. There are no artifacts. There's nothing. There's, there's just... But the devotees of that whole line of thinking uh, are also seem to be devotees of the idea that our government keeps secrets from us about Amelia Earhart. And if the, the government is... It, it, it's so bad that I am seen as an instrument of the U.S. government's attempt to keep everybody from knowing what really happened to Amelia Earhart. So, I so mean, we're really we're really moving into conspiracy theory. Terrain. Oh, oh, big time! Yeah, okay, <laughs> really big time. And it, it these people get very excited. They get they, they really dislike me for some reason. I I don't know any of them. I've had no contact with. But oh, I'm I'm a scam artist, uh, a fraud, uh, you know, on and on. It gets really ugly. Now, but 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 the question becomes: those people will never be satisfied. No, they they won't. You know, we we can find that airplane in the water off Nicomororo, and they will say the Japanese planted it there. I mean, it's I fine. Got it, yeah, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but the, the the other theory that still has legs is the theory that she simply crashed and sank at sea. That uh-huh. is the that was the official government verdict, and it is still the official government position. If you talk to the senior staff people at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, they will tell you that nothing that we have found is uh, has been shown to be connected to Earhart. The, the clues don't count. If if you don't have solid proof of something that you can connect to Earhart, you know the, the, these. Artifacts that we found on this island, they could, they could be anything. They could come from anywhere. What, what, what they don't seem to be able to reply to is the whole rate, post-loss radio signals that had to be coming from an aircraft on its wheels on land. And there are a number of those reported signals that you just can't explain away, and they don't try. They put their fingers in their ears, and they go, la, 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 and they don't want to hear it. So... What what we need to do is go back and find the rest of the airplane, um, and hope that it's there to find. And you're going to go do that. That's what's well. Left to do. If we can raise the money, if you, you can know, raise I, the I money, I hate to end this on a fundraising pitch, but yeah, right. Uh, that's that's what we need to do. Well, Rick, this has been fascinating. Uh, you certainly don't have to convince probably ninety nine point nine eight percent of the population that you've done the job, and it's a magnificent story. And I hope at some point you are going to put that nail in the coffin. I don't know what it'll be because uh, nothing will ever be con- con- convince certain people. But it's a wonderful story, and it's a wonderful job of of archaeological forensics at the highest levels of technology. And we appreciate your spending the time. I, I just had one, one thought that, that is really ironic. You know, the, the, something you address in your show all the time is archaeology is not Indiana Jones. And our investigation has certainly not been Indiana Jones. But to put that final nail in the coffin, we need an Indiana Jones-type discovery. That's the irony. Yeah. Wonderful job. It's fantastic. Okay. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate Thank it. And we'll be in touch. Thank you so much. Okay. We'll see you all next week and stay well. Bye. Thanks.
again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. We'll be right back. 